It's the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined by Hollywood Capone. How are you doing today? I'm great, and thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's fun to be here. Are you live from New Jersey? I am live from New Jersey. Hot and humid and sticky New Jersey today. Oh, geez. Well, you said earlier you just got back from vacation in California. How was that? That was probably one of the most wonderful things I've done all year. Uh, my wife and I usually go once a year, but when the pandemic hit, um, we haven't been in two years. So uh, getting away to there was just it was refreshing. And, and we did two weeks this time. And it was um, it was almost like we were home. Uh, Having so yeah, good. having lived there, what is your favorite place in California? Well, I got to say Laguna Beach. There's no question. Shout out to my peeps in Hollywood too, but but uh, <laughs> Laguna Beach is is definitely our our favorite place to go. Uh, the beaches are beautiful. Uh, the people are wonderful. The skies almost seem like they're ever blue, and it's just a great place to be. Well, great. I'm glad you. It's nice that people are getting to travel a little bit more now, isn't it? You know, it's a little bit frightening, though. I, I got to say, I, I put this we put this whole trip together and I never really considered the act of being on an airplane for six hours with 400 other people. I don't know. Right. And, uh, right. It was a little disconcerting, you know, but, um, you know, we're vaccinated and hopefully everything goes the way it should. And, uh, and here we are, you know. Yep. My husband is a pilot. And so we do quite a bit of traveling, but I always feel like I'm, I I know they say the air is better than hospital air and it's supposed to be all filtered and all that, but I always feel like I'm in a Petri dish of (laughs) with, with uh, a lottery Petri dish. You don't know, you know, exactly. You you know, whatever you, whatever, I mean, you know, just knock on wood, hopefully, Yes, exactly. Well, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself and um, and who you are. Well, I'm Hollywood Capone. Um, I call myself an accidental author, Um, and the reason I say that is because I, for the most majority of my life, I've more or less been a jack of all trades and a master of none. I've been a rock and roll band singer, guitar player, um, quote unquote poet. I've written a lot of different. Shorter thing. <laughs> now, why is poet in air quotes? Well, because it's uh, it, it started out as something I did when I was very young. I used to read a lot, even when I was really, really young, younger than most kids, you know. And uh, and I just I I got a um, I had a a knack for you know saying things with rhymes or saying things that were a little deeper without actually saying them. Mm. And uh, and it was just something that stuck with me and. You know, later in life, high school, I'd you know write poetry to kind of express myself. And then, uh, you know, as I got older, you know, I met my wife, and I'd write her love letters, and you know, I, I'm more like that kind of thing. Never really published yeah. anything until until the ashes uh, when I got to that point. Yeah. So you're an actor, also. Uh yes. Not yes. A great one, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
okay one. <laughs> you're you're an okay. You're you're um, a nominal actor, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that, that's being generous, I think. But <laughs> so, what is your favorite acting gig that you've been a part of? You know, I my favorite acting gig wasn't really an acting gig. It was an accident. Well, it wasn't an accident, but it was. Um, I was uh, I went on an audition for um, it was like some company that were advertising a man on the street segment of a travel show that was shooting in New York. So I took the audition and uh, they liked me. And um, so they asked if I want to come back and do the gig, to which I said, of course, yes. You know, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to bring anybody else with me. And uh, I said, well, yeah, that's great. You know, I'll bring my wife, and my kids. And um, it was supposed to be uh, like a, we were going to be sitting in a restaurant. They were going to come in and ask us some questions. What do we think about New York? What do we think about this restaurant? Blah, blah, blah. But actually what it was, was a ruse. Uh, it was actually a setup for a show called Cash Cab. And it was kind of oh. back in the 2000s. Yeah. So I had taken my wife and my kids to, they, they said the production um, uh, assistant was going to meet us at this bagel place over on uh, across from Central Park. So I went over there. She comes in. She's got $20 in her hand. She's like, look, the production van broke down. We want you to take this $20 and hail a cab and we'll meet you at the location. Just tell them, you know, where you're going to go. So well, I said, okay. But now I had been on a lot of auditions that were pretty sketchy up to this point. So now I'm saying to myself, oh my God, what did I get my family involved in here? You know? Oh yeah. But we, we go out onto the Avenue and I, you know, hail the cab, the cab pulls up, we get in it and bam, all the lights come on. It's Ben Bailey in the driver's seat. And next thing you know, we're on cash cab. It was so much fun. Oh, fun. What did the kids think of that? They thought it was a riot because they watched the show. So they were like looking around like, oh, my God, we're on the show. It, it was just so <laughs> exciting. It was and they were they were young, but they were old enough to get it. You know, yeah. and, and it was just it was a good and we won 500 bucks, too. So that was cool. Hey, not a bad day. No. <laughs> so where did you grow up at? I grew up in northern New Jersey. Um, I kind of grew up in two towns. I, I grew up in Bergen County, which is an affluent town up in north. And I grew up in a, a middle-class town in, in not quite central New Jersey, but Morris County. And um, that kind of happened by accident. My my parents lived in Morris County in a little town called Mine Hill. Um, my father got a good promotion at work and wound up buying a house up in Bergen County. But in the interim there, while he lived in Morris County, his parents moved to town too. So what would happen is I would live in Bergen County, but in the summers, I'd spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house. And since I had friends from, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I had these relationships in these two towns growing up that were, you know, of considerable distance from each other. So it was, it was interesting growing up in two different towns and, and having two completely different sets of friends. Yeah. Did you have um, a favorite place? Well, in hindsight, I would say Mine Hill was probably my favorite place. And, and the Ramsey people are not going to want to hear that, but by the time I got to Ramsey, my parents were having problems with, with their marriage and, and things were taking a turn for the worse. And it was just an, an awful place to be growing up there. I mean, I mm -hmm. had friends there. We, you know, we lived our lives. We went to school, we did our things, but it was just, it was never really a great time. You know, most of the great times of my life were, were in the Morris County house and, uh, and the friends that I made there were more, um, uh, the happiness factor was more pronounced there. You know, I, mm -hmm. I was never really happy in Bergen County, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, I think we underestimate the impact that, um, that our parents' struggles and uh, family turmoil takes on kids, right? Yeah. But you know what? It's, 
but living in Ramsey up in Bergen County, it, it, I have lifelong friends from there and, and they're wonderful people. They're, they're great people. And I have you know, wonderful connections with them and, and relationships to this day. It's just that whenever I drive through the town or anything, there's always a little bit of angst inside me. That's mm-hmm. this, I don't know how to explain it, but it's uh, there's always someplace I'd rather be. If that yeah. Makes sense. yeah. That, ma- that makes sense. If it wasn't for growing up in the town, I, I never would have met my friend Alan. And ultimately, that's how I wound up writing my book is through that relationship that he and I developed over, you know, 40 years of knowing each other. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Alan and your friendship. <laughs> well, Alan and I met in the fifth grade. Uh, Alan's mom was my math teacher and we were very young and I didn't know anybody in town. I just got plopped into school in the fifth grade and you know, coming from Mine Hill and all of a sudden I'm in this affluent neighborhood. That wasn't where I came from. I came from a, you know, a, a strongly blue collar town where mm-hmm. nobody really had much money. And now I hear I am living in this town where everybody has money and I'm, I'm kind of on the outside. And, um, but Alan was one of those kids where that didn't really matter to him at all. I mean, at fifth grade, it, it wasn't something that was not even on his radar. And um, we just hit it off as, you know, friends and, Somehow we just wound up always being friends and uh, it was just, it was great. I, I, I feel so blessed to have had the opportunity to know that guy. So you guys um, stayed friends for a really long time then, right? Oh yeah. I mean, we, um, just like any friends, you know, it's, it's not a constant, you know, there were times where, you know, we didn't speak for a while and not because of any animosity or anything. It's just because life took us in different places. Sure. You know, I lived in California for five years. And in those five years, we only spoke a few times, really, you know, and he was doing his thing. And, you know, when he was in law school, he was really busy just grinding through all that. And I was doing my thing. But but there was always like these crossroads that would come together where mm-hmm. we would kind of intersect and, and, and everything would be just the way it was when we left off. And then, you know, the last I'd say. Uh, probably it's got to be like 20 years, you know, the last 20 years or so, we were pretty close because. You know, he was out of school and doing his thing and, and working and me basically the same thing once I came back from California and we spent a lot of time together. It was wonderful. Yeah. So tell me about his death. What happened? It was a big surprise. And I mean, in hindsight, I, I guess I should have figured something like that would eventually happen because that was kind of Alan's way of doing stuff. He would um, just take these ridiculous risks sometimes. And unfortunately, up until that point, they always worked out for him, but this time not so much, but he had, um, it was a, a piece of trim, a, a piece of wood molding like this big that he had to hang up on one of the eaves on his grandmother's house. And he had hired some painters and, you know, they didn't want to do it. They were up there, but they said, you know, we don't do woodwork. We're not hanging the trim up. So he was probably aggravated by that and set up a series of ladders in like this, you know, build a better mousetrap kind of way of getting up there. And got up there and, and the whole thing fell out from under him and and the rest is really history. You know, it, mm. it was just very quick. One day I was talking to him and it was just, you know, the same way we talked to each other all the time. These ridiculous texts of goofy stuff or, you know, he was very political. So the very, you know, political stuff going back and forth. And um, and then the next day there was nothing. It was like um, somebody just closed this big steel door. It was. Uh, yeah. It was How crazy. old was he when he passed? Let's see. I'm 50. He's probably, I think he was 53 when he passed. Okay. And how long ago, how long ago was that? That was October of 2019. 
Okay. And so what about that grief process and um, just uh, helping your brain get through all of that made you want to write a book about it? And the book is called The Ashes, by the way. Yes, it's it's called The Ashes. That's my buddy right there on the cover. That's me in the background. And that was from, it's got to be like early 1980s, 1982, 1983, something like that. It was, it was tough because at first it was, I, I was really just numb at first. Um, and then I was angry and there was a lot of stuff going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. I get a little choked up here, but um, <clears throat> I was having a hard time with it, you know? Yeah. And uh, one day I sat down in front of my computer. I'm like, you know what? Let me just write a paragraph and try and explain to myself what it is that I'm feeling. And I started writing and then I just wrote some more and, wrote some more. And, and next thing I know, I had like an entire chapter and I'm like, well, what's going on here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the next day I came back to it and I wrote some more and I wrote some more. And, and next thing I know, I was on this, I was on this ride it was, uh, I wasn't really in charge of the ride. Mm-hmm. I was more like along for the ride and, uh, just happened that way. So is the book um, about your friendship? Is it about the grieving process? Is it about um, life after somebody somebody passes? What's kind of the theme of the book? I kind of say it's all of the above. I, uh, I wrote it as both nonfiction and fiction. So through the first, mm-hmm. I'd say half of the book, I, I, I kind of wander in and out of, you know, about what was actually happening and my visits to the hospital. My father was very close with Alan as well. So we went together a few times and, um, you know, he was torn up about too. <laughs> but, uh, the end game, the, um, when, when he, after he finally passed and, you know, the family had him cremated, there was, there was this big open wound. Um, there was no, you know, final ceremony. There was no, there was no burial. There was no memorial. There was, there was no nothing. It's almost like they, they just erased him. Mm. And uh, that was a really hard f- thing for me to deal with. And, and I deal with that in the book in a fictional way. Um, okay. And if anyone reads the book, um, they'll kind of see what I'm getting at, I think, you know, and if they knew Alan or they knew any of the story, you know, any of our people from up North or whatever, um, if they actually read it or read it, uh, I think they'll understand what I'm getting at because Alan was cremated right after he died. And, um, and like I said, there was no memorial or anything like that. Um, so I, I wrote a story about how we were in the desert and um, we had to battle this evil snake of fire. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, things don't work out for Alan mm-hmm. and he gets consumed by this evil, evil snake of fire. And um, it's just the way I kind of told the story. I, I tried to tell it in a way that uh, made sense for me. Yeah. What do you think is the most important thing that you've learned about grief, about processing grief? Oh, it's, uh, it doesn't really ever leave you. Like I'm talking to you now and it's kind of coming back and it's a Mm -hmm. bummer and I hope I'm not, you know, blowing the interview for you, but uh, no, it's great. It just never leaves. You know, you deal with it, you make the best of it. Um, you try and work through it and try and take something constructive from it, but it never goes away. How does it, how does it change as time passes? 
Well, I mean, like anything, you know, if, uh, as time passes, of, of course, it gets easier. You know, it's, um, I mean, sometimes these ridiculous things happen to me because Alan was one of these people that he had a comment for everything. And sometimes they would be like so far-fetched. You'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that, you know? <laughs> but sometimes when things happened that I know he would comment on, and now that he's gone, I would just laugh out loud by myself because I know exactly what he would say. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I'd be with my son. My son knew Alan a little bit too. So, you know, sometimes we'd be with my son and I, I would just laugh out loud. And he'd look at me and he'd know why I was laughing, you know? Because yeah. There's just some things are um, unique to, to certain people. Right. And they stay with you that they, they make an impression that's for sure. Um, so go ahead. Yep, absolutely. So, um, you and I have something in common. Um, we, um, have lost loved ones to, to drug overdose. And, um, I lost my sister six, it'll be seven years ago, this, um, New Year's Eve. And, um, yeah. And you lost your sister also. So oh. tell me a little bit about, about that journey. What was that like for you? Oh, that was horrible too. Uh, I didn't write about that because I, I don't know if I had the maturity. That was something that was, um, that was just a body blow. That mm-hmm. wasn't anything other than just at the time. I, I just, I just thought, you know, life was just crapping on me just to crap on me. You know, did I, I, she, um, what, did you know that she was an addict? Yeah, she had problems, you know, she'd bounce back and and then, you know, have more problems and bounce back and, and have more problems. And, but she was in a place at that time where she had, um, she had two kids. No, she had, yes, yeah, she had, she had a couple of kids and she was married and her and her husband were making a go of life. You know, they had a little mm-hmm. carpet store. Um, they had a little place out in Pennsylvania. Um, my father helped him, you know, buy a place out there that was real cute and, you know, a a nice, warm, comfortable place. And, um, you know, she'd still have problems back and forth, but it looked like she was on the, I don't want to say on the mend, but she was on a positive path. Mm -hmm. You know, she was, she was coming back and then, um, and then it just all unwound and it, it, it unwound really fast. It wasn't like something that was got progressively worse and worse. We were, everybody was very hopeful and, and, you know, the family was very positive. And then, and then one day the worst was, uh, the worst was happening. Yeah. Was it uh prescription drugs or street drugs or. Uh, she, she was a heroin addict. Okay. Okay. Yeah, was- well, it's really hard um, when you see your sibling to um, process their struggle and to process um their their addiction and and just say you know is this really real I felt I I found myself just always thinking is this is this really happening like you know what I mean it just seemed really surreal to me like why is this happening what's going on here yeah yeah um I think I I hate addiction and um I know that it is uh I know that it is a symptom of other pain and other struggle but um I just don't think there's any any way around hating it when you lose when you lose loved ones to it you know No it's the it's the worst thing too because there's always these what ifs you know mm-hmm. I, for the longest time I was like well you know 
what if I tried harder? You know, what if I reached out to her more? What if I spent more Absolutely. time with her? What if I did this? What if I did that? And and there's no way to answer that. What if there? Mm-hmm. It's it's an unanswerable question, and it, but it, it's one that that can be maddening. Yeah, it can be, and it can it can if if you don't let that kind of heal and process, it can be all consuming and overwhelming because because you just carry that that sense of guilt with you that doesn't really belong to you. Um, it it belongs elsewhere, but we carry that in our in our brains and in our hearts sometimes. So I find that too. So what part do you, um, I'm a woman of faith and I, I believe very strongly in um, its role in our lives. Um, what role does faith play in your life and processing grief and loss and all of those things? Um, an incredible part, but not in a way that most people would really think or, or that most people subscribe to. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't really, I mean, I, I was raised Catholic and, you know, through all the, you know, things that we Catholics do, you know, first <laughs> confirmation, you know, right. baptism, I mean, you know, the whole thing, you know, but, and, and a lot of that to me, I, I understand as, as, as valid teachings, but it, it's not really how I see it. I mean, I, I don't see a, you know, a, a, an almighty spirit sitting on a throne on a cloud mm-hmm. on high it, it, it that doesn't really ring with me but i do believe that there is a you know a higher power of some sort i, I believe mm-hmm. there's a creator of some kind i i don't think that it's um i i don't think I, I don't think that would be possible for that to not be judging by the fact that we are pretty cold pretty proof positive the sole life forms in the universe mm-hmm. you know i, I they say there's life here. There was life there, but I, I've not seen it. And if there is, it's, it's minuscule. And, and that may very well have been created by our creator as well. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I believe that I believe that there's a force greater than us. And uh, for me, yeah, I, I have friends that are you know, very devout. Um, they have their way of praying and things like that. And, and something for me, I, I pray from time to time, but in, in my life, I, I've come to find out that whenever I pray, the only thing, the only time I get an answer to my prayers is when I ask for strength. Mm-hmm. Every time I ask for strength, I get it. If I ask for something like peace on earth, or if I ask for something like a better job, these things, these things don't resolve to me or for me. You know, maybe they do for some people, but it, it just doesn't work in my wheelhouse. But I have prayed for strength more times than I can count. And every single time I've asked for it, gotten it. Mm. And, and when you talk about strength, you're talking about inner fortitude and, and, um, uh, emotional, uh, spiritual kind of, kind of force, Perse- right? Perseverance, perseverance. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been in situations where I've been so down, like there's no way I can get through this. You know, how do I get through this? But you know what? take a few minutes, get on your knees, put your head down and, and ask for the strength and mm-hmm. it's never failed me. Not once. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you uh, most want people to learn from your life this far? Maybe, maybe your children, what do you most want them to know about you? Well, I mean, I'm pretty much an open book. There's, if anybody does know me, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that don't know me and I, I would like them to know me, but the people that do know me, they pretty much know everything about me. I'm not really any sort of conundrum or big secret, but what I would like to, 
what I would like to share with people is how I feel about life. Um, it's precious. You know, so many people and myself included from time to time go through life and they, they have a tendency to not notice the people around them. Mm. Um, you know, you, there's people in your lives that are in your lives every day that you care about that. I don't want to say take for granted in a negative sense, but we get into our routines and our lives and things. And, and sometimes we just, we, I don't, I don't want to say we forget to notice people, but we forget to think how life could possibly be if they weren't there any longer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a distinct possibility. And, and when it happens, it's just the worst thing in the world. There's no way to go back from that. So the point that I am trying to make is that the, um, when we do that, um, I think that as we go through life, we should just take a few moments and, and recognize those people that are close to us and, uh, and just let them know that we love them and care about them. Because and, that's- and value them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing parts of your story. Um, how do people follow you or get a hold of the book and uh, and uh, read more of the story? Well, I'm on Instagram. I can be found as either Hollywood Capone on Instagram or Bill Capone on Instagram. And I'm also on Facebook as Bill Capone. Uh, the book, we can get the book on Amazon. Um, it's available uh, by the Ashes by Hollywood Capone. If you search on Amazon, it'll come right up. And um, it's available as a paperback. Um, it's available on Kindle and on Audible as well. So if you go to Audible, you can oh, search. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. The Audible recording. Tell me about that process. Oh, it was hard. It was horrible. I, I You're an actor. Del- I had this delusion that I was gonna read the book and it was gonna be great. It was gonna sound awesome and and I was gonna sell a million copies and. I read the book and I listened to it back and I, I was like, Oh my God, this is the most horrible thing I've ever heard. What do I do now? <laughs> and uh, so I had the, I reread it and I edited it. I reread it and I edited it. I, I did four read throughs on this book, which took an immense amount of time. It took me, it took me six months to write and publish the book. It took me nine months after the book was published to complete the narration and publishing it because. Wow. It, it, it did just, you, did you have to set up like a studio to get the sound just right and all that? Oh, that was another tough thing because I do have a studio, but it's in the front of my house. But it, it's something I use more for like music creation and things. I, I never really considered the noise of cars going by behind me and things like that because it, it never really mattered. A lot of the music was going direct into my computer, electric guitars, things like that. So it was right. But, but reading the book out loud. All of a sudden, there's a car would come by like every night at the same time, like 10 times in a row with like a muffler <laughs> on. And I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh my God, like, how do I deal with this? You know, so. Right. I, I you up, can't scrub that sound out very. No. So I wound up having to start later at night. Like sometimes I would start nine to 10 o'clock at night. I'm a little older. By the time it gets to midnight, I'm ready to fall asleep. It's, there's no, yeah. you know, but uh, eventually I got through it. It was very difficult, but I learned a lot of valuable things. I'm working on my next book right now. And when that's finished, I'll have a better understanding how to narrate that. And hopefully that'll go a lot smoother and, and it'll be a more positive experience for me. Can you tell us what the next book next book is about? Um, a little bit, because even I don't know how it ends yet because I'm in the middle of it. But I can tell you this, it's, um, it's kind of vain, but I figured at this point in my life, I'll take some liberties. Um, it's about a bunch of high school kids who saved the world. Um, uh-huh. And right now where I'm at is uh, I 
more or less finished developing the characters. I've about 20,000 words into it. I'm trying to explain who these characters are, and I've got a lot of great ones. Um, I've got a, a, a pair of birds. They're both hawks. Um, they fall in love. It's awesome. Uh, I have, uh, there's uh, two dogs. There's a, a little bit of an older dog, and he meets a younger puppy. And these are all sentient animals, so they mm-hmm. have a way to communicate with one of the main characters. And I also bring back my buddy Alan in the book, too, because I figured they're in high school, and uh, I can't have him here, so <laughs> I'm going to have him there. That's that's incredible. Well, I um, I admire your your work and your um, ability to write and put your story out there. So, well, I um, I have enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much for your for investing in in just listeners and in um, just in life. Thank you for having me too. I mean, it's just uh, I appreciate you taking the time, and I appreciate you having me here, and uh, and I appreciate the conversation, and I appreciate your sharing too. It's uh, you know, I, I wish we could talk more about your experience too, because yeah. I, you're not, that's helpful for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and on Twitter, Jill Riley Author. Email jill at jillreilly.org.